0: So here we go. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. We'll We'll read this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right, can you hear me? Is that coming through? I think it's coming through extra, extra loud. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the atrium. This is our first Sunday in here, so big thank you to everybody who helped us move in yesterday, helped us set up, who helped us set up this morning, who will help us set up in the, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, pretty decent space. I think it'll do for now. Uh, I personally miss the beige on beige that we had going at the school, that's going to be hard for me, but I think I can do with the aesthetic here. Uh, super Mod, uh, that's short for modern. Uh, super cool, super hip. It doesn't make us hip, but it is a hip space. So um, today, I was thinking of one of my favorite uh, movies. It's all the way back from the 90s, so we'll kind of show you how old I am. But the movie, The Usual Suspects, was one of the great movies of the 1990s. And the opening line of The Usual Suspects was this, the greatest trick, the devil." the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And uh, Kaiser Soze is right about this. The devil has has pulled the trick that the world generally does not believe that he even exists. In fact, statistics back this up. uh, Even American Christians tend to believe in God, but not believe in the devil. Sixty percent of American Christians, according to a study, believe that the devil is more of a a symbol of evil, a a general force of bad in the world rather than an individual. They also believe that of the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, that that the Holy Spirit is simply a a force rather than a a person, God the Holy Spirit as a person. But it's interesting because two-thirds of American Christians also believe that there is evil in the world as demonic spirits and demonic forces. And so even though people don't believe in a, in a personal devil, they still understand that he or something is at work in our world in such a negative way. And so now why do I share all this and why is this important? Uh, well, first, because 90% of all American Christians uh, love statistics at the beginning of sermons, and so I like to get that out of the way. But also because it, it shows what a, a, a lack of understanding we have about the evil that exists in our world today, the, the evil that the devil brings into our world, into our lives, against us as Christians. If we, if we underestimate or, or, or doubt the mere existence of the devil, that doesn't do us any good. It's not going to keep us from harm. It's not going to keep us uh, safer. It doesn't keep him from opposing us and tempting us. And so we, we should look with sobriety at the Scriptures on, on the devil and, and we're doing that in the Lord's Prayer. So this is our ninth week in the Lord's Prayer. If this is your first week here, if you're just here for the building, we're glad you're here. This is our ninth week in the Lord's Prayer. And we've reached this phrase, lead us not into temptation. Now the second half of the phrase is what we're going to look at next week. But deliver us from the evil one. And so the temptation in the first half of the sentence is directly tied to the evil one in the second half of the sentence. And it's interesting that this is even included in the prayer at all. The Lord's prayer, as we've said, is meant to be a pattern for our ordinary, everyday, daily prayer. And so it's short, it's just 53 words in our English translations. but it, it exists to show us everything that we can and should pray for over the course of our days, even throughout our days. And so the fact that, that Jesus would encourage us to pray against temptation, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one means that we are going to be facing temptation every day of our lives. We are, going to be, we are going to be opposed by the evil one every day of our lives. And so this week we're looking at the nature of temptation and how to, how to pray for guidance. Next week we're going to look at spiritual warfare and how to pray for deliverance. And so today is the phrase, lead us not into temptation and three things in particular, the, the nature of temptation, the false promises of temptation, and then the response to temptation. So first, the nature of temptation. What, what is temptation? Who is it that tempts us? How are we tempted? I think most people, most believers, when they hear the word temptation, they might automatically think of, of lust and adultery and, and pornography. And yet in the scriptures, when temptation comes up, it's, it's actually far deeper than that. Even those things are a temptation to something that's deeper and, and more core to who we are. To look at the first major example of temptation, we go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. You may know this story well, but I think it's important for us to to see the nature of temptation through Adam and Eve. And so this is just after creation. We don't know how long after, but Adam and Eve are living in, in paradise with God. They are walking with God the way we would walk with one another in in the beautiful, perfect garden that He has placed them in. They have everything they need. They have a calling. They have vocation. They have one another. They have the presence of God. And it says in Genesis 3, at the very beginning, Satan appears in the form of a snake and begins to chip away at their relationship with God. The devil says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, first of all, this is not what God had actually said. He didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. He said in Genesis 2, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God was actually saying, there's there's this huge, lush, incredible garden in front of you, and you can eat from every tree that you want, except just this, this one tree. So there's an incredible amount of freedom that God gives his people. And yet when the devil comes, he's, he's trying to chip away at their trust in him. And he says, did God really say you can't eat from any of this? Now Eve responds back in Genesis 3. At first she corrects him and says, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now again, that's not exactly what God had said. Eve, Eve adds this phrase, and you must not touch it. Now perhaps this was Adam and Eve's way of, of of staying a little bit farther away from the temptation. Maybe this is a good idea. If you're told not to eat from a certain tree, you just don't go anywhere near it, and you don't touch it. But they began to believe that, that even this extra this extra law had become God's law itself. Sometimes we get confused and we add extra rules and regulations to God's law, and then we can't remember what was God's law and what the man-made laws are. And so the devil responds, you will, not, you will certainly not die. So now this is another sort of half-truth from the devil, from our enemy. He says, certainly you won't die. And in one sense, it's true, you won't physically die, but in a deeper sense, you will face a spiritual death that will cost you the rest of your lives. And in fact, all of creation will face a spiritual death and a curse that it will be under for centuries and centuries. And the devil snake says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good good and evil. So again the devil is lying. It's it's so sneaky, it's so shifty, it's a it's a half truth. But he's calling them to question God's goodness and his love. He's offering them power and control apart from God. And so Eve took the apple and she ate it and she gave it to Adam who apparently was there the entire time not saying anything, not defending Eve, not standing up against the temptation, but he takes the apple and eats it as well. And the text says, immediately their eyes were opened and they became ashamed and embarrassed and they hid from God. From that moment on, nothing was ever the same again because now this perfect world has been shattered and corrupted by sin. And so what do we learn from Adam and Eve? It's a few things. First, that the devil is a real person and he opposes us. We learn that he is a a liar and his lies are are not always so obvious, but they're often these little half-truths that try to get underneath us. He's called a deceiver throughout the scriptures. We also learn that his temptations are, are ones that call into question God's love and his goodness. He tries to chip away at our relationship with God. And then lastly, his temptations try to tell us that true power, true control, true freedom, it's all all apart from God. The things that you really need, the devil says, they're apart from God. And if you stay with God, you won't get what you really need. All of the devil's temptations, they're always immediate gratification. They're always right now. Do it, do it my way. That's how the Jesus storybook Bible puts it. I love it. The devil says, do it my way, not the way of God, not the way of Jesus. Now, the second thing is to look at the false promises of temptation. And to do this, we go to the the New Testament and and the second major example of, of temptation and it's Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Immediately after Jesus is baptized, It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. And so this time, Satan doesn't use the the snake costume. He knows Jesus is not going to be fooled by that old trick but he comes in a moment of weakness and vulnerability. I've never fasted anywhere near 40 days and 40 nights, but I can tell you how quickly I get hangry when I'm fasting. It's like 40 minutes, and suddenly I I can't stand up the way that I used to, to temptation or whatever it is that's opposing me. And so it is is cold-blooded that the devil waits until 40 days and 40 nights without food, and then the first temptation is bread. The first temptation comes like this. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, what I think this temptation is and what we can relate with so much is that this is a temptation to comfort and ease. The first temptation, it, it strikes Jesus' vulnerability and we are tempted in the same ways. We're, we're tempted to take shortcuts into comfort and ease all the time. The, the way of the devil, when he says, do it my way, it's always rejecting God's timing. It's always a shortcut. It's always immediate gratification. He's saying, use, use your skills, use your abilities, turn these stones into bread. Do something great in the world and then take the reward, take the bread that's yours. It's a constant temptation. The devil's saying to us, you don't need to follow that hard way of God. You can do it so much easier. You can have have comfort and ease right now. And we're tempted in the the smallest and the the most subtle ways. And the devil knows what's going to get into our minds. He says, you need that third road bike. And we say, not today, Satan. I need it. I want it so bad, but I'm not going to get it. All the temptations to comfort and ease, they come so slowly and so softly. In Luke 12, Jesus told this parable about comfort and ease. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now this is, this is the American dream. This is what we are taught to do, taught to love, to, to build something and to grow something and to make it bigger and to store up things to ourselves so that at the end of our days we can take life easy and just, just relax. Just just enjoy the fruits of our labors. But the parable doesn't end there. Jesus continues, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God a temptation to comfort and ease. It's it's everywhere around us in our world. It's the water that we swim in every single day. It's the air that we breathe moment by moment by moment. And yet Jesus calls the lover of comfort a fool. I think it's so interesting and important that the devil's first temptation to Jesus is not even really a a specific sin. I mean, to turn stones into bread, that's a miracle. It's not really a a sin in other circumstances, it's not like he's telling him to do something outrageously wrong. He's just telling him to do things his own way, to prioritize his own needs, to not wait on the timing of the Lord, to do life without God, without hardship, without self-discipline, without generosity towards others. And this is the false promise, that true comfort and ease is available apart from God. That if you want comfort and ease in this world, you have to do it apart from God. I think so many in our culture are, are captured by this first temptation. And it's not a sin to, to watch Netflix. It's not a sin to, to have an IPA after work. It's not a sin to go on vacation. And yet these things are meant to be refreshers from us, from the work that we are doing day in and day out in God's kingdom. The good work that that God has called us to in in cultivating our our culture and our land. The work of raising children and and building friendships and serving the poor and needy. These these gifts, TV, good food, Colorado, these are wonderful gifts given to refresh us. But like dessert, any too much of a good thing, it's going to destroy us. The first is doing the work that God has called us to. And so Jesus passes, he passes this first test. He won't take the easy way out. He's going to do what God has put him on earth to do. But the devil comes back with a second temptation. It says the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up. And so the devil even used Scripture in his temptation of of Jesus. And I want to suggest that this temptation is a temptation to popularity, a temptation to getting the the approval and the praise of other people, to having other people look to you and and meet your needs and, and lift you up. A temptation, again, that we face each and every day. For us, it makes it, it might look like making sure others know who we are and, and respect our position in the world. It might look like maybe putting somebody down when we have the opportunity so that it might look, make us look a little bit better. In some way, uh, 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 making sure that we have the approval of somebody else at work or in our family or one of our friends so that we are not rejected. We're constantly tempted to popularity in our relationships. And instead the way of Jesus, it's described in Romans 12. And Paul says, be devoted to one another in love. So you can't really love somebody if, if, you need their, if you need their approval. You can't really love and serve somebody if you need them to like you all the time. So Paul continues, honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And so the false promise here in this second temptation, it's that people will only like you if you're just like them. People will will only like you if you're just like them. And in a sense, this this is actually kind of true, but it's still a false promise. You may lose friends. You may even lose family members walking with God. But think about the opposite. Think about always trying to shift who you are and, and find the right words for every single person you're around so that you never lose their approval. That is exhausting. Trying to figure out the exact right type of person that each and every person you meet wants you to be. It's exhausting and it'll it'll lead soon, sooner or later, it'll lead to a total collapse. Jesus passes this second test as well. He's not going to be a crowd pleaser. He doesn't need others' praise. He will love and serve them instead. Now the third and final temptation. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And so the devil, he has been increasing the the power and the appeal of each of these temptations. The third one is, is the great temptation, the capital T temptation, and that's to power. Power over other people, power over the world, control over others. He thinks maybe Jesus won't go for comfort and ease, maybe he won't go for popularity, but nobody can resist incredible power over the world. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't immediately say, he doesn't dispute it, he doesn't say you don't have this kind of power. It's as if he recognizes that the devil can actually give him power over this world, the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus recognizes too that this immediate power, take it it now, take all of it right now, do it my way. That's not the way of God. There has never been a day or an age without the abuse of power. And our culture is so power hungry, so power addicted. We see it in politicians and billionaires and in celebrities. And yet the great temptation is to see it out there and, and not see it in here. To look out and, and see the, the, the power addiction that, that exists in our world and not to see it in our very own hearts. Each and every one of us has a natural bent to to gain and to accumulate power for ourselves. And usually it's more subtle. It might be hanging on to, to money or possessions or relationships or influence. Maybe it's not serving the poor and needy or giving in generosity the way Jesus did. And this is the false promise that the world has what you really need. And the way of Jesus will cost you dearly. Jesus passed this third test as well. And it says that the devil left him. And that's the promise of the New Testament. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Recognize the the lies of these temptations. Expose the false promises that are beneath them. And it's as if the devil doesn't have the, the patience and the stick to to keep messing with you. He'll just go on to the next person. He's living in the moment and calling us to that immediate gratification. So he moves on to someone else. And so the third thing for us this morning is the response to temptation. In our prayers, how do we respond to temptation? The first thing is simply don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Now this could be a whole sermon in itself, but God, God doesn't tempt us. James 1 makes that explicitly clear. God does not tempt us to sin or to do evil. And yet God does test us. He he gives us tests in our life to show us, like any other test, where we are, where we're deficient, where we need to grow towards maturity and perfection. And though the Lord never tempts us, He can use the devil's temptations to test us, to mature us, to make us complete through His Holy Spirit. It takes a lot of pressure to turn coal into a diamond. A stone is only smooth after being hit with a million waves. There is no other way to maturity besides hardship. 1 Corinthians 10 says, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so the first thing is don't be surprised. I think in our suffering, one of the the greatest forms of suffering, the thing that increases our suffering is our our surprise at it. When one of our coworkers says something mean behind our backs and we find out about it, when somebody says something mean to us, when we suffer a, a loss, when we suffer real loss in this world, we think, how could this happen to us? Why would God let this come in to my life? And we can, we can spin out and spiral simply by being surprised at the nature of suffering in our lives. But Peter, who was who John's dear friend and knew what it was like to be tempted, he even denied Jesus three times. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. Now, the second thing in response to temptation is to take the better offer. Take the better offer. Jesus' response to that last temptation, the, the temptation to power, this is what he said. He said, it is written, worship the Lord and serve him only. It's a direct quote from Deuteronomy. And so Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm, I'm not interested in power. I, I'm not going to take that way even though it's appealing. He doesn't simply push back on the temptation to, to comfort and ease, the temptation to popularity, the temptation to power. He doesn't merely resist it but he takes the better offer he says worship the Lord and serve him only there is only one true God and he is better than anything you can ever offer and so he's not just merely resisting a temptation to a good thing he recognizes that he already has something far better in his father in fact everything that the devil tempts us with is something that's already true of us or something that we already have promised to us in Christ the devil's just trying to give it to us the wrong way. Trying to give it to us right now. So think about it. The temptation to comfort and ease in this world. It's an illusion. It, it will be gone one day. But God offers us peace like a river. A, a rest that will never fade. He's our, our refuge in times of need. We have the ultimate comfort. The ultimate peace in Christ. Everything that's offered to us in temptation is just a corrupted and a, and a short a, a shortcut to the true thing that God has promised us in Christ. Popularity in this world is a fickle thing. One minute you you have somebody's praise, and the next minute they totally reject you. And yet we have the ultimate acceptance in Christ. We're fully known, fully loved. We're brought into a family where we can belong. We have a place in this world and in our relationships, something far greater than the devil could ever offer us. Power in this world is corrupt. It's ugly. But God is the source of all true power. Power is a gift. The power to to heal, the power to save, the power to change lives. God invites us into this power by his Holy Spirit, a pure and a holy power. And so this point, I think, is so crucial for our spiritual formation that it's not just enough to resist temptation and, and to push it off, but to look, to look more critically at it and to say, what is beneath this temptation and, and how can I expose the false promise? How can I see that I already have something so much better in Christ himself? And so take the better offer. And then the third thing, resist, but don't withdraw resist temptation, see the lies, expose the false promises, but don't withdraw completely from the world. Now this is a, this takes wisdom for all of us and this takes community for all of us to know when we are supposed to just stay away from a temptation, something that's just clearly wrong, something that will cause us to sin, we just stay away from completely and that's absolutely true. And yet, I think there's a withdrawal that's appealing to us to just put ourselves in a place where we won't be tempted at all. And Christians throughout history have, have done this. This is why we have Christian schools. We send our kids to Christian schools so that they won't be in the world with those bad people. We don't listen to regular music. We listen to Christian music. We go to Christian coffee shops. We eat Christian bread. We do everything in our safe, insular little bubble so that we will never be tempted. And yet that's one of the temptations to comfort and ease. So this takes wisdom, this takes conversation, but resist and don't withdraw. There's a New Testament scholar that says that praying, lead us not into temptation, it means that we are signing on for a struggle and a battle. It is the prayer that the forces of destruction, of dehumanization, of anti-creation may be bound and gagged and that God's good world may escape from being sucked down into their mess. It's our responsibility as we pray to to hold God's world before our eyes and to, to sum up its inarticulate cries for help, for rescue, and for deliverance. See, the way of Jesus is to go into the world. At times, to even go head first into the darkest of places, the toughest public schools, the the work industries with the fewest believers, the the hardest neighborhoods. If you withdraw completely from the world, you no longer need prayer. If you set up an entire life for yourself of comfort and ease, you no longer need prayer. Prayer if you have all the popularity, all of the power in the world, if you've taken all of the devil's temptations, you no longer need prayer. Soon you find yourself not even needing God at all or at least believing that lie. Instead, we resist. We say no to the easy way out and yes to the call of God on our lives to be a city on a hill, to be a light into darkness to be like Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so resist, but don't withdraw. And then the very last thing, the last response to temptation, you won't be surprised by this, it's, it's to pray. There's always three points. The last point's always application, and the last application's always prayer. So I, I'm aware of that, and I'm going to keep on doing it for a really long time. Pray. Pray for guidance. Pray for deliverance. Pray for a way through. Pray for the way of Jesus that you might cling to it, that you might understand and have wisdom for resisting but not withdrawing. Pray that you might see the temptations to comfort and ease to popularity and power. Pray that as you reflect on the day before and the week before that you might see places where you gave in to temptation, where you took the shortcut, the easy road through instead of following The Lord in the hard place. We pray this as a constant reminder of our need for the Father's protection. So we don't have to live in fear. We can pray this prayer precisely because Jesus has already gone directly into the darkest forces of evil in this world and he's conquered them. He has already faced the devil head on at the cross and been victorious. He's already gone to the cross to pay for all of our sins. Every time we've given in and taken the shortcut, he's already paid for all of that in his death. And his resurrection shows the power of God over all evil. God and the devil are not two equal and opposite forces fighting against each other. God created the devil. And he fell in his own sin and has been opposing God ever since. But God can crush him at any moment that he wants. At the cross, He has already defeated death, sin, and the devil. And one day, all of those things will be fully realized in our lives. And so with boldness, we don't have to hide from the temptations of this world. We don't have to wall ourselves off. Instead, Hebrews 4 says this, and it's such a beautiful verse. It says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so look to Jesus, pray to the Father, seek the the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Temptation will follow us all the days of our lives just as it followed Jesus all the days of His life. See the lies. See the false promises. See that Jesus obeyed even to the death. He passed the ultimate test that we could never pass. And now He invites us, understanding, being able to empathize with our weakness and our vulnerability and the temptations that are against us. Through Jesus, we can approach the throne room of God like a true king's son. Go right to the throne without fear. The ultimate power in the universe right before us in prayer. The one who created us, who loves us, who has adopted us. And so Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace with confidence and there find mercy and grace in your time of need. Let's pray.